If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Unlike many countries defeated by Nazi Germany, France was not occupied in its entirety at first. Instead, a nominally independent regime was established in the city of Vichy, which survived until the Allied liberation of the country in 1944. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're examining the origins of Vichy France, exploring its relationship with Nazi Germany, and asking what life was like for those who lived under Vichy rule. Answering your questions on the subject was Professor Shannon Fogg, a historian at Missouri University of Science and Technology. And putting your questions to her was BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. So let's begin with the basics. And one common internet search question is, what and where was Vichy France? Well, that's a good question. And you would think that it would be relatively easy to answer. But I think like most things with the Second World War, it's a little bit complicated. So Vichy is the name of a city in central France. Uh, It's located about 360 kilometers southeast of Paris. It's kind of between Paris and Lyon. And before the Second World War, it was really known for its thermal baths. It was a spa city. And a lot of people visited the area uh, to go take the baths. It was meant to be good for your health. And so people would travel there specifically Uh, to visit these thermal baths. Members of the royal family, the French royal family, would go to to Vichy to take the water. It was very popular under the empire of Napoleon III. Celebrities came. And so in the early 20th century, you really have um, a growth of kind of this tourist industry around the city of Vichy and its spa and its waters. So because there's so many people coming to the area, there's a lot of hotels in the city. And that's going to be really important for understanding Vichy during the Second World War. But to really understand kind of what Vichy is, uh, we have to go back to before the war um, ends in France and think about politics a little bit at the time. So We know that in September of 1939, the French declare war on Germany, but nothing is happening. Nothing is happening on the Western Front, and it it becomes known as the Phony War. And it's not until May of 1940 
that the Germans launched their attack on the on Western Europe. And as the Ger- German armies begin to advance into northern France, the French army starts to retreat, as did many civilians, and eventually the French government does as well. And on June 10th, 1940, the Prime Minister of France, who was Paul Reynaud, and the entire French government fled Paris, and they head south in advance of the, of the Nazis invading and headed towards Paris. And they head south, and they go to Bordeaux. The b- government is basically in disarray at this time. The, the military um, defense of France is, is falling apart, and Reynaud is forced to resign. And when he resigns as prime minister, he is replaced by Marshal Philippe Pétain. Pétain was heading a group within the government that was calling for an end to the fighting. They believed the war had been lost. Uh, And he wants an armistice. Pétain wants an armistice. And he will request that armistice on June 17, 1940. The armistice will be signed on the 22nd and will go into effect on June 25th. Now, this armistice is part of the armistice. France was to be divided into seven different zones. And the Germans were going to occupy, initially, three-fifths of France. And it's the entire northern portion of France. It includes the entire Atlantic coastline, uh, all of the industrial areas, the agricultural plains. Paris is located in uh, this part of France that is going to be occupied. And it just so happens that Bordeaux, which is on the Atlantic coast, would fall into German-occupied territory as part of this agreement. So the question now is, they've fled Paris to get away from the Nazis. They've gone to Bordeaux, but that area is still going to be occupied. The armistice did allow the French government to choose its own seat of government. It said uh, explicitly in the armistice agreement that they could set up the seat of government in unoccupied territory. They could return to Paris if they wanted. They could decide where they wanted to have the government seat. Uh, The government decides that it wants to be in the unoccupied zone. And so Vichy, that, that spa town with lots of hotels, is in the southern zone. It is in what will be unoccupied France. And it has all of this empty hotel space that would be able to accommodate uh, the legislators and the ministries and the government. So Vichy will be selected as the government's new seat. So everybody moves from Bordeaux, they go to Vichy. And on July 10th, 1940, the legislature, all of the members of the National Assembly, they get together, they meet in the casino uh, in Vichy. And they vote overwhelmingly to grant full powers to Pétain to revise the Constitution. So he is given full constitutional powers. In other words, he no longer has to consult a legislature. He can make the rules. He can make the laws. uh, And that is exactly what he does. And what he does is he he establishes a conservative and authoritarian government in its place. So the new government is founded. It is in the city of Vichy. It is officially called the French state. That's the new name as opposed to the French Third Republic. And so we go back to this question of what and where was Vichy. So it's a city, but but the term Vichy France also becomes a stand-in for the new French state. Some people refer to the new government as the Vichy regime, but it's more commonly just kind of referred to as Vichy France. It's also come to mean the part of French territory that was not initially occupied by German troops. Uh, And that's the, it also is sometimes known as the Southern zone or the unoccupied zone. Uh, Sometimes it's even referred to as the free zone, although there wasn't really anything free about it. But the term Vichy France can be somewhat confusing because it refers to a city It can refer to the entire government that's governing France throughout the Second World War, or it can be used to talk about just that southern part of France that was not occupied by the Nazis. So so as you've said, um, France was split split essentially into two, one part that was under 
German occupation. The other part is Vichy, which is nominally independent. But I suppose there, there's a question of how independent it was. And we had um, a question came in from um, TW on Twitter, and they said, how much influence did Nazi Germany have on Vichy France? That is a good question. And that's one of the things that Vichy really tries to maintain throughout the war is its own sovereignty. They are one of the few governments that does not flee. Um, Other countries in Europe, the Polish government, for example, uh, flee Europe and they set up governments uh, abroad, usually in London. Uh, France does not do that. At the same time, they were also not under direct German administration. So they're not, it's not a German government in place. The Germans are there. There is um, a, a structure in place, but Vichy is meant to keep its sovereignty. And the government itself has the ability, all of the laws that it issues applies to all of France, not just to the southern unoccupied zone. It applies to all of France, as long as it doesn't contradict any of the laws that the Germans are instituting or putting into place. So you often get kind of um, parallel sets of, of laws in place. Vichy institutes its own rules about rationing. Uh, Vichy does its own rules on economic Aryanization and, and taking the property of um, people who have fled fled France or from Jews or from members of the resistance. Vichy sets up its own rules um, considering the the place of Jews in France as well. Uh, It issues its own Jewish statutes. And of course, there is the influence of the Nazis, but Nazis are often not demanding these changes. France is instituting these changes on their own. And Pétain really had this vision of remaking France uh, following what he called the National Revolution. In this this belief, um, France had been defeated so easily, in his view, because of the decadence of the interwar years and that things had become too liberal and too different. And so he really wanted a return to more traditional values based on the values of work and family and homeland, this idea of nationalism as well. And this was meant to replace the ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the ideas of of Republican France, the ideas of the French Revolution. It was a conservative return to traditional values based on the peasantry and the Catholic Church and traditional roles for women and and the nuclear family. So Vichy does have um, a lot of independence. Of course, the, the Nazis always have the last say. Uh, the, the French often try and negotiate and do not get the things that they want. But it's not directly ruled by the Nazis. Some people like to talk to it as a puppet regime, and it's not really. There is a lot of sovereignty, and they're often trying to assert their authority. But the, always within the confines of occupation by a foreign country. So the the figure of Philippe Pétain is clearly really crucial to this story. Now, in the First World War, he'd become a hero for fighting against Germany. So was it much of a compromise for him to have to accept rule of only part of France and then to some extent with Germany holding the power? It is somewhat of a compromise for him, but it also allows him to to really follow this idea, this idea of a national revolution. Um, he there are a lot of things that he likes about this. He this gives him the opportunity to get rid of the legislature. This is a way to. He was very anti parliamentary, so this is is very much part of it. Um, so he's it is a compromise but it is it also allows France to try and achieve its own goals of returning to a more conservative more authoritarian kind of government and if we look at French history it's not that unusual there has been this kind of constant back and forth since the French revolution between republican forms of government and, and then more conservative 
authoritarian uh, roles. In the French Revolution, there's the end of the monarchy and the establishment of the French Republic, but then that is replaced by Napoleon and his empire. And then you have revolutions throughout the 19th century where you'll have a republic for a little bit and then the restoration of the monarchy and then a republic and then you have Napoleon III's empire. So there's this back and forth between Republican government and conservative government. And in some ways, Vichy can kind of be seen as a continuation of this back and forth. And coming from the military, Petain is coming from a conservative background. He's coming from uh, this kind of authoritarian worldview as well. So even though Germany is the enemy, if France can be a partner, if France can collaborate and be seen as someone who can help Hitler build the new Europe that he's envisioning while still being able to achieve its own goals of regenerating France in a more traditional image, then this is something that, that Pétain is willing to do. France, of course, had a large empire at the point in which it was invaded by Germany. And our at home on Twitter wanted to know, were French colonies included in the agreement with the Nazis? Yes, absolutely. The French colonies were, from the very beginning, part of the agreement with the Nazis. They were very much part of the war. They were involved in different ways. And as you mentioned, the French Empire at this point stretched across the globe. France had extensive holdings in North and West Africa, in the Caribbean, through uh, South Asia, and in what was then called Indochina. And after the armistice in June 1940, all of the colonies, except one, except for Equatorial Africa, initially sided with Pétain. And these colonial territories all remained unoccupied by German troops throughout the war. So it really is Vichy who has maintains control over its colonies throughout the war. And when France mobilized for war in 1939, this included the mobilization of soldiers from the French colonies. French colonial subjects, volunteers, and conscripts were all called to arms just like men in France. Uh, colonial soldiers had fought in the First World War, and they were called up to fight again in the Second. And there were actually 10 colonial divisions out of the total 80 French divisions that were called up beginning in September of 1939 and were stationed along France's borders. And after the defeat of the French army in June, more than 85,000 colonial prisoners of war were held in camps in occupied France, and many of them remained there throughout the, the entire war um, period. And so the armistice is a really important document, the armistice. The armistice has 24 points. It's outlining kind of the expectations for, for what will happen now that the French military has, has surrendered. And that armistice was signed on June 22nd, 1940, in the same rail car where the Germans had surrendered after World War I. And from the very beginning, the French colonies are included in the agreement. The very first article in the armistice ends the fighting against Germany in France, as well as in all of the French possessions and colonies and protectorates and mandates, as well as on the seas. So from the very beginning, uh, it was clearly established that the colonies uh, would not be kind of a continuation of this war as well. The armistice included information about occupation terms and military conditions and economic expectations, and the colonies are, are explicitly mentioned in these articles as well. So it is very much uh, a part of of the agreement with, with the Nazis. And over the course of the war, colonial possessions will be in, involved in other ways as well. Of course, Britain and the U.S. attack the German army in Africa beginning in 1942. Allied troops will take over North Africa in November of 1942. French West Africa will join the Free French along with French Equatorial Africa. So the French resistance will have a very strong foothold in, in France's African empire 
after 1942. So Vichy maintains control over the colonies. The the laws that it institutes for mainland France also apply in the colonies as well. And there are laws that come into play in the colonies. So it's very much a part of of the wartime experience uh, of Vichy. Okay. And uh, moving on to domestic life in Vichy, uh, Sonia Di Slafani on Facebook had this question. What was everyday life like for civilians in Vichy? So daily life was really hard for civilians during the war. But experiences differed based on where you lived and based on what you did and who you were and how you were defined under this new regime. There were major differences between life in the occupied zone and the unoccupied zone. There were differences in experiences between living in cities and in rural areas. There were differences if you were a man or a woman or a child at the time. Uh, There are certainly differences if you're in one of the groups that have been identified as so-called undesirables during the war. So civilian life really, really varied. Uh, One of the things, though, that changes dramatically during the war is that the border between the occupied and the unoccupied zone was sealed. So the Germans outline a, a clear line that basically runs from the Swiss border through central France uh, and goes along the the kind of the western coast, the Atlantic coast, and that that line was sealed. Uh, there's barbed wire fencing that goes up. There are checkpoints there, so you cannot cross freely between between these different halves of of France anymore. Uh, certain areas were designated as forbidden zones, especially close to the coast. So those areas, people were not allowed to return to their homes in, in these areas. Anyone, uh, any Jew who had fled the northern zone in France, and a lot of people did flee uh, at the beginning of the war. There's approximately 6 million French people on the road as the, as the Germans are advancing. And all of these people have, have fled south uh, once the armistice is declared and people want to return home, many do, uh, but the government, well, actually it's the, the Germans who declare that um, any Jews who had fled south were forbidden from returning to the occupied zone. So if you lived in Paris and the majority of of the Jewish population in France lived in Paris or in Alsace and Lorraine, if they had fled south then once that border was sealed, they were not allowed to return to their homes in the north. Alsace and Lorraine, uh, the, the eastern on the eastern border of France, were annexed into Germany as part of this armistice as well. That territory had gone back and forth from the Franco-Prussian War, and then after the Great War, it returns back to Germany during uh, the Second World War. So people living in that territory are now actually considered living in Germany. And the most visible difference as well is that people living in the occupied zone saw the presence of German troops. German troops were actually on French soil. And so they saw soldiers in their uniforms walking down the streets and, and saw kind of the visible um, embodiment of of the occupation. There won't be any troops in the south of France until after November of 1942. And that's something I think that we um, often kind of forget about is that after the Allies landed in North Africa, the Nazis used the proximity of the Allies in North Africa as as a reason to occupy all of France. So that border disappears in November of 1942, and all of France is occupied, although the Vichy government still exists and and is still there and still in place and still issuing its own laws, but all of France is occupied after 1942. So the economic effects of the defeat and the armistice, especially the fact that, that France was required to pay the costs of occupation, really had an effect on people's daily lives as well. 
The Germans are requisitioning food, they're requisitioning industrial products. All of these things help pay those occupation costs, but it's also part of the Nazi plan to make sure that people at home in Germany do not suffer the effects of the war like they had during the First World War. But that means that the people in France do experience shortages, especially shortages of food and the things that you need to um, take care of your your farm. And there's shortages of rubber and gasoline and uh, basically all kinds of, of goods. Rationing was introduced very early in France and rations decrease over the course of the occupation. I think that uh, they go as low as, as something like 900 calories per day are guaranteed by your ration cards. And most people, most adults need something between 2,000 or 2,200 calories per day. So just having a ration card didn't mean that that you would have access to these products that you needed, to the food that you needed. Um, cues become very much a part of life. People queuing up to get milk or butter or sugar or or flour, just the, the basic things that you need. So it's very difficult. The search for food comes to occupy a large portion of people's time. And you have children who are who are queuing up in these lines. And you have people exchanging their ration cards or people making trips out into the countryside in search of food. Especially if you live in cities, uh, it's more likely to have food um, available in the countryside. So people would would travel out and, and venture from farm to farm looking for items to purchase. On certain days, you weren't able to buy certain kinds of foods. Uh, the amount was limited. Bread was limited in terms of uh, bakeries could only sell day-old bread. And the amount of, of wheat that was in the bread kind of diminished over, over time as well. So the Vichy government increasingly regulates material goods. Uh, Ordinary people respond by manipulating the system. People turn to the black market. They build relationships with people in the countryside. There's an explosion of family packages that are being sent. Uh, They were called family packages, even though very often it was just an acquaintance who was helping you. You paid them some money and they would would ship you something from, from their farm. Uh, but that also becomes very exploited as well. People are hiding illegal items. They're they're putting butter inside a rabbit. They're, they're then shipping through the mail to, to somebody who lives in a city. So you also kind of get this then urban and rural divide between people. It also depends on what kind of things are grown in certain regions the south of France especially is known for having vineyards and, and grapevines, but that's not good for your kind of daily provisioning needs. So there's some malnutrition, uh, there's, there's you know, um, hunger. We don't see starvation uh, at the level that you see in places like Greece, for example, but there is this um, kind of constant search for food and this, this um, kind of market that grows up around it as well. Jews who um, had their ration cards actually were stamped with a big red juif or juive on it. And the hours that they were allowed to shop were also limited. So that's a different experience depending on how you are being defined by, by this regime as well. Um, in terms of other things in, in everyday life, uh, the National Revolution, this idea of this return to home and family and and, and fatherland or, or motherland, also glorified French families. And that creates many policies that limit things like women's access to divorce and abortions and provided financial incentives for, for larger families. Children are a big part of Vichy's plan for national regeneration the education system is revised, and the new curriculum includes religious instruction in schools. Stories are based on anti-Semitism and nationalism. Uh, children are sometimes getting extra meals uh, at school provided by aid organizations, especially international aid organizations. 
Some children are evacuated, especially from from Paris early in the war and sent to children's homes in, in rural areas, at least temporarily during the war, not to the extent that you that you see, I think, in, in Britain, but this is part of some of, of children's daily experiences, especially early, early in the war. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I would say that at the beginning of the war, Vichy did have support. Many people were relieved that the fighting was over. Um, And Pétain himself, as you mentioned before, he was a war hero. He was someone who was revered. He was a grandfatherly figure. Here was this this war hero, uh, this person who is very trusted. Now, you've already talked a few times or alluded a few times to the status of Jewish people in Vichy France, but um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about that. So what was the fate of Jews under Vichy regime? How much was the country involved in the Holocaust and how active was Vichy France itself in what went on? That's a big question. Um, and it's something that is that is still, I think, debated, although I think most people agree that Vichy very much instituted its own anti-Semitic laws in France, uh, things that were put into place that were not um, in response to German requests or to, to German, German demands. Uh, in this idea of this national revolution, it was to purge France of all of these so-called negative influences, internationalism, uh, communism, socialism, all of the of the kind of cosmopolitanism of the 1930s was seen as negative, and Jews were seen as the the image of of all of these ills in France as well. So Vichy will actually institute its own anti-Semitic laws before the Nazis ask for any anti-Jewish legislation. Um, the first Jewish statute is issued in October of 1940, and it limits the number of um, Jews in certain per- professions. There's quotas. It allows foreign Jews to be interned or to assigned residence in a, in a particular house and not able to move. Um, censuses appear as well. And by the end of 1941, there were several hundred new laws that dealt specifically with Jews um, and and limited their their daily lives. One of these things um, that we see that especially uh, affects Jews is the expropriation of of their property as well. There was economic Aryanization, which uh, transferred Jewish-owned businesses and property into non-Jewish hands. Uh, There is very much um, uh, an attempt to to exclude Jews from from social life, from economic life of France as well. Uh, The French uh, laws, the French statute, actually defines Jews more strictly than, than the Nazi definition as well. In terms of of the French role in the Holocaust, um, the the French are responding to Nazi demands for numbers of people to deport from France, but they are active participants in it. They uh, do not try and stop many of the things that are happening like you see in some other countries or some other governments. Uh, they focus first on foreign Jews or stateless Jews in France, but uh, French Jews are deported as well. And these arrests and deportations begin in the northern occupied zone, but when when the number of Jews arrested do not meet the Nazi numbers, the quotas that they wanted, uh, Vichy allows for the arrest and deportation of Jews from unoccupied France as well. 
And there were already large internment camps in the South in this unoccupied zone that had had collected um, Jews who were refugees or who had been sent from areas in Germany who were expelled from Germany and sent into France. There were camps in North Africa as well. So even though um, North Africa colonies are are not part of uh, this, um, there there's internment camps there as well. So all of these rules that Vichy puts into a place apply to both the the occupied and uh, the unoccupied zone as well. And in the end, um, approximately 76,000 Jews in France were deported uh, from, from France. Uh, most of them were sent to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and of those deported, only about 2,500 survived and were able to return there's 8,000 children included in these numbers of, of people who were deported from, from France. I don't want to you know, just focus on, on the negative part, which is it was devastating, absolutely. Uh, but there was also support for Jews in France as well. There were people who helped Jews illegally cross from the northern zone into the southern zone. The southern zone was perceived as being safer, at least uh, through November of 1942. And there were also networks that would try and help get people to neutral Spain and to neutral um, Switzerland as well. People tried to sail uh, and emigrate from the ports, especially Marseille was a a large uh, place where people would try to leave France to go abroad as well. So there's um, geographical reasons for for people to kind of go to the south and then try and and, and leave Europe altogether. Uh, but there uh, was still a, a devastating a number of people who were who were arrested and deported and died uh, during the war. And uh, alongside uh, French Jews, were there any? Other groups of people within uh, either Vichy or occupied France who were targeted by the Germans or the Vichy regime? Sure. Other groups of um, so-called undesirables, the, the Roma and the Sinti in, uh, in France, were also interned. None were deported directly from France, but they were certainly the target of exclusion as well. Um, and resistance uh, fighters, people who are who are opposed to either the Nazis or Vichy, because that's not necessarily the same thing. There are some people who are very against the Nazis and Nazi Germany and occupation by a foreign country, but who may in some ways still support Vichy as a legitimate government uh, in France. But uh, people who are fighting against uh, the Nazis are are definitely targeted um, by by both the Nazis and and Vichy as well. And an interesting question that we had from Hugh Burkmeyer on Facebook, and he asked, "How much popular support did the Vichy government have, and did this change over time?" Yep, that's a really that is an interesting question, and the question of public opinion and support for Pétain continues to be a, a point of debate. And I would say that at the beginning of the war, Vichy did have support. Many people were relieved that the fighting was over. Um, and Pétain himself, as you mentioned before, he was a war hero. He was someone who was revered. He was a grandfatherly figure. Here was this, this war hero, uh, this person who is very trusted and if he's telling you that that this war should be over and that we should return to normal and he's going to protect us from the death and the destruction that we saw in the First World War, a lot of people feel very relieved by this. They're, they're glad that the fighting is over. Um, they're glad that Pétain, right, the victor of Verdun, he has our best interests at heart. Um, he's going to, to save us. And so there is this kind of, at the beginning, um, a sense of relief and, and support for Vichy. 
I would say, though, overall, though, when we kind of look more closely, um, about 2% of the French population were actively and strongly committed to collaboration. People who uh, believed in the Nazi cause, people who are working for the government, people who think that this is the right direction for France. At the other end of the spectrum, you've probably got about a similar number, about 2% of people who are active in the resistance, people who are actively fighting against um, the Nazis, who join resistance organizations, who take up arms or are printing newspapers. So we've got 2% collaborationists, about 2% active resistance, but the majority of people fall somewhere in between. They're just trying to get by. They're just trying to live their lives and survive in these, in these harsh conditions. Um, the, the laws are changing. It's hard to get food. There's 1.8 million prisoners of war. So many homes are without fathers or brothers or sons. Uh, people who would have been working in the factories or working on the land. So there's there's all of these different kinds of of concerns, and people are are somewhere. Most people are just somewhere in between. In terms of how um, support kind of changes over time, some uh, it depends on 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 what what perspective you're looking at and what. Thing is influencing how people view the government. And some people see 1941 as a turning point in opinions of, of Vichy. You start to see that things aren't really getting better. Economically, things are really bad. You have people being arrested. Other scholars locate the, the population's break with Vichy in the summer of 1942. It was in the summer of 1942 that you have the first major arrests and deportations of Jews in both occupied and unoccupied France. And these were very visible. Um, people saw their neighbors being arrested. They saw people being rounded up and held in places like the Velodrome d'Hiver um, in, in July of, of 1942, when over 13,000 people are arrested and held in a, in a cycling stadium for days before being placed on, on buses and moved to a, a transit camp at Drancy. So these things are very visible. People see once, once these um, waves of arrests take place, um, the empty apartments of Jews are, are completely looted. They're emptied. Um, the, the German government orders this. This was known as the, the furniture operation. And they take all of the furnishings, everything out of people's apartments. They take them to warehouses where they are sorted, they are packed, and then those items are then shipped to the east to be provided to German bombing victims or to be provided to Germans who are settling further east in, in Poland. So you see People see their um, their neighbors' apartments being emptied as well. And so seeing these things around them, for some people, um, this is a, a reason to kind of lose faith in in the government because it's the French, it's the French police that are sealing these apartments. It's, it's French moving companies that are emptying these apartments. Some people think this is great as well. Um, it's more space. It's it's apartments that they can move into. It's removing these foreign influences as well. So you kind of get both. But the the visibility of this starts to make people question uh, the government. And for some, it, uh, the major turning point in public opinion is not until 1943, because in 1943, uh, the government instituted a compulsorily compulsory labor service in which young men were drafted much in the same way that they would have been called up to serve in the army. Instead, they are being called up to be sent to Germany to work in German factories because there are shortages of labor in Germany. So people are being um, drafted into forced labor from France. And rather than going to 
to Germany, many of these young men will then at this point choose to join the resistance. They'll they'll go into hiding. They'll go into the mountains or into the woods and, and join with bands of other people. Um, so it's this attempt to avoid the labor draft that you then kind of see a turning point in, in opinions towards or towards Vichy. I think overall, um, people did kind of oppose the Germans and the Nazis as as foreign occupiers, but they were much slower to lose confidence in in Vichy and and even slower uh, to become disillusioned with Pétain, this great hero, this this legendary leader. And we've already talked about the uh, resistance a couple of times, and we had a question in from Trekeka on Instagram. And they asked, how much success did the resistance have in combating the Vichy government? I think it's really hard to measure success. One of the things we have to do is kind of define success. What, what, did, um, what did we mean by success? And I think it's even harder to kind of define what do we mean by resistance. Because for some people, resistance was active, um, taking up arms, um, fighting against the the regime, and in a way, if that's if that's what we're trying to use as our measure of success, then the resistance was not extremely successful um, in that regard. It's not going to be until the Allied landings that that the Nazis are are defeated and that and that Vichy will be removed from power. Um, is success? getting people to think about things in a different way? Is it is the resistance people listening to the BBC, for instance? And a lot of people did, and people do, um, you know, re- read uh, clandestine newspapers. But does it change kind of the course of, of the government? I think overall the answer is, is not really. Um, even when we kind of see this outrage against what's happening um, to the Jews. Finally, some leaders of the Catholic Church speak up, but is there an overwhelming um, kind of support for for Jews um, after that? Not entirely. There's still, you know, just some networks. And that raises the question of of rescue. Is rescue a form of resistance? Um, Who's involved in the resistance? Is it is it men? Is it women? Um, in terms of success, um, there were, of course, they blew up some railway lines. There were some assassinations of German officials or soldiers, but those often resulted in in reprisals as well. And in the end, tens of thousands of of people were were executed. Uh, for their role in the resistance, or deported, and, and many died in, in deportation. So the overall success in kind of changing programs or changing the course of, of the Vichy regime, um, it's hard. It's hard to measure. And when we're talking about opposition to Vichy, I suppose we should also discuss the Free French. So, what exactly was their role in this story, and how did they connect to the French resistance? Yep. So the Free French, um, right? So on June 17th, when Pétain um, goes on the radio and he announces to everyone that he's going to be seeking an armistice, that he's going to be calling for an end to the fighting, uh, many people welcome this. And it was exactly on that same day that Charles de Gaulle uh, had flown to London um, he was an undersecretary. He had only been in the government for a very uh, short amount of time. He uh, f- he goes to London, and when he hears about this, he says he's not coming back uh, to France. And this is actually, right, he's refusing orders. There's an, a, le- a legitimate government in place. And it's on the next day, on the 18th, that de Gaulle makes his his famous speech um, where he talks about the flame of resistance must not go out and that uh, France will continue to fight from abroad. And he makes a call for, for people to come and, and join him. And in these early stages, very few people did. Um, I think only about 7,000 uh, soldiers rallied to him. 
he was really hoping that the colonies would would rally to his side and that the war could then maybe continue from abroad. Uh, there were some uh, deputies in the government who thought this as well, and they had gotten on a boat and, and sailed towards North Africa. Um, and none of this happens. It's only um, French Equatorial Africa that that rallies to 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 De Gaulle initially. And because he is in London, he is removed from the resistance that's happening within um, within France as well. So there's it's a really kind of divided um, situation. But uh, the Free French are actually recognized. Uh, by the British on uh, June 28th. So very shortly after, they are seen as kind of this alternative um, to to Vichy and and things that um, could be there. But it's a very precarious situation. And it is not until much later in the war that all of the different kind of organizations, resistance organizations, the ones within France, the ones outside of France, um, are, are able to kind of be brought together under the umbrella of the Free French. Um, after the Allied invasion of North Africa in 1942, we'll really see the Free French getting a much stronger foothold. Uh, de Gaulle will move the Free French uh, to to Africa, um, and they will set up basically a shadow government there. And it is at that point in 1943 and then in 1944 that this Committee for for National Liberation will kind of be seen as the shadow government and be recognized as um, what is intended uh, to be part of um, the new government once this war is over. So when exactly does Vichy come to an end? Uh, how long after the Allied invasion of France does the government fall? So that one's kind of um, interesting as well, right? So the Allies invade France um, in Normandy, right, as part of Operation Overlord on June 6, 1944. But they won't break out of Normandy until the end of July. Um, and in August of, of 1944, the Allies will also land on the Mediterranean coast and begin advancing up from the south. Paris will be liberated at the end of August, and, and most of France will be liberated by early September 1944. But this isn't really the end of the story for, um, for Pétain. So Pétain is still, um, after these invasions, um, he is still in, in Vichy, and the Germans actually want him to come with them uh, to move out of Vichy, to go back into to Germany and prepare for what the Nazis see is there's going to be a, a great battle, and they will ultimately be victorious, and they need the legitimacy of this, of this French government as well. Um, Pétain doesn't want to go, and the Germans actually... Um, forcibly and physically take Pétain and Laval, who was the the head of the government, um, and they are taken first to another place in France, and then they are taken to Germany uh, to a castle um, in in the false hope that that they would be kind of brought back um, into power in the future. Pétain is actually trying to plan for how he could transition into the leader of whatever new government is put into place at the end of the war. Um, and he's actually quite angry with the Germans for taking him out of, out of France, and he refuses to perform any of his duties as, as head of state. All of this really doesn't really matter um, at this point. This is the end of August 1944, um, things are really collapsing at this point, um, and it you know what is the what is the official end? Um, I think it's really when uh, Paris is liberated, uh, uh, August nineteen forty four. And then we had a question on Instagram from Luke Gauchy, who asked: Were the leaders of Vichy France prosecuted by the Allies after the liberation? So. 
One of the tricky things, I think, is thinking about who made up the Axis and who made up the, the allies. And growing up in the, in the U.S. And, and when I was at school, we were always taught where you had the list of the Axis and you had Germany and Italy and Japan. And then we had the list of the allies and we had the United States, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union and France. France was always on our list of people who were on the allied side. We didn't learn about Vichy France. We didn't learn about collaboration. We just learned um, kind of about the outcome at the at the end of the war. And you see that reinforced after the war as well um, in the, the division of Germany into zones after the war, right? You had the French zone and the British zone and the American zone and, and the Soviet zone. So it kind of depends on how you define the allies and, and its leaders. But the short answer is yes, the leaders were brought to trial after the war, um, but they are not tried before international courts like you had with the Nuremberg trials of Nazi leaders. Instead, the French uh, leaders are, are tried before the French high court, um, and they are being tried for, for treason. And these trials begin in March of, of 1945. Uh, Pétain had actually been offered asylum in Switzerland, uh, and it was kind of hoped that he would he would stay there, he could be tried in, in absentia. But Pétain really wanted to provide his account of the war years, how he had sacrificed, how he had been a great leader, and how he had protected France. And so he returns to France and he will uh, be put on trial. His trial will begin in July of 1945. And his defense strategy really was to claim that Vichy had acted as a shield, that Vichy had protected the French from the worst of Nazi demands through collaboration. By collaborating, they had been able to protect France. Um, and Pétain's defense also claimed that he had been playing a double game throughout the war and that while he had been collaborating with the Nazis, he was also in contact with the British. This is not true. None of this was, was convincing. Uh, and Pétain was found guilty of treason and was condemned to death. Um, however, due to his age, we have to remember that he was 84 uh, at the beginning of the war. So this is this is four years later. Um, the court recommended then that his sentence should be commuted to life imprisonment. And Charles de Gaulle does accept this thing, uh, this, this negotiation. And Pétain will be um, sent to uh, a, a prison on the Ile Dieu, which is a, a small island off the, the French Atlantic coast. Uh, after 1945, and he will stay there uh, until his death in July of 1951 at the age of, of 95. So um, Pétain, as, as, the, as the head of state, is tried. Laval, uh, Pierre Laval, who is uh, the head of the government, he was head of government at the beginning. He kind of comes, goes in and out, but he will also be tried in 1945. His trial is in early October of 1945 and only lasts a few days. He also is found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Um, but before he was to be executed, he swallowed a, a cyanide pill. But they wanted to make sure that he was actually executed. His stomach was pumped repeatedly, um, and he was actually dragged basically half dead to his execution on October 15th. So very much the leaders were tried. Other prominent uh, members of the government were also tried. Some were sentenced to death. Some had their sentences commuted. Others received prison sentences. And, and the last um, case would be held before the, the French High Court in July of, of 1949. So it's about a, a four-year process. Sentences did become kind of more lenient uh, the further away from the war the the trial was, and we'll actually see kind of um, a, a resurgence of of these trials in the mid 1990s when people who had been kind of very 
uh, leniently sentenced after the war uh, were retried in the 90s for crimes against humanity, especially for their role in uh, the deportation of Jews from France. Uh, and you'll see some of that then come back around in, in, the, in the 90s. And beyond the official judicial means, how many reprisals uh, were carried out against either collaborators or alleged collaborators within France? So collaborators, collaborators um, in general represented a small portion of, of the French population. And after the liberation, there's actually a wave of, of trials. And almost 125,000 people were charged with treason at the end of the war. About 38,000 were convicted and served time. But there's also a wave of popular reprisals as well, kind of popular justice um, angry outbursts against kind of local people, people that you knew, people uh, in your in your neighborhood, in your city who had um, actively collaborated with, especially with, with the Nazis. Um, and in that, it's estimated that probably about 10,000 people were kind of um, judged outside of the system and were executed in part of this wave of reprisals that was was known as as the purge. So there is this kind of popular um, attack on on known collaborators. There's also um, a popular wave against women who had had relationships with German soldiers, and this was known as horizontal collaboration. And these women often had their heads shaved and then were paraded with um, signs on 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 them, you know, talking about how they had also collaborated as well. So there is this kind of popular wave of reprisals, and this is trying to kind of be stopped by a more official um, process of actually using legitimate um, judiciary um, processes to, to re-legitimize um, kind of the return of, of a Republican form of government. And then just moving on to the present day, uh, Mark Tinkle on Twitter had this question. How is Vichy remembered in France today? Is it still talked about and is there a sense of atonement? So Vichy is um, still remembered. Vichy is still very much a part of um, French politics and, and French society. Um, it just in the last week, there's uh, been a new book published about um, current political candidates who are falsifying the history of the Second World War and especially the role of Vichy in the deportation of the Jews and reviving this myth that Pétain created in his trial of serving as a shield rather than as a voluntary collaborator. So I think France is very much coming to terms um, with its past. And it's been a long process. Immediately after the war, there is this myth of resistance that, that dominates public memory. And it's really coming from de Gaulle, uh, where he's come back into France. He's, he's the head of the provisional government, and he talks about France as a nation of resistors. And so all it's a way to kind of cover up all of those divisions and to prevent that kind of civil war and all of those reprisals that you see at the end of the war. But it lasts for a very long time. And it's not really until the 1970s that the first cracks in this myth start to appear. Um, and then you kind of get a swing in the opposite direction. From everybody being a resistor, you get this almost opposite idea that everybody was was a collaborator. Um, and there will be several scandals that bring Vichy back into the public eye, uh, especially in the 80s. It was revealed that French President Francois Mitterrand had worked for Vichy before, before joining the resistance. And so this becomes kind of a public um, um, scandal in a way. It's, books are written about it, and it's all over the news. Then in the 90s, you have these series of trials for crimes against humanity, which brings Vichy's role in the Holocaust 
uh, back into the public eye. But it's not until 1995 that the French president publicly acknowledged French complicity in the Holocaust. So it took quite a long time um, for uh, Vichy's role to, to be recognized. There's certainly a lot of scholarship that's being done on this period. There's a lot of really good work in films and documentaries. Um, there's been a growth of, of memorials and museums related to the war years. And these are, I think, all ways that people are trying to um, understand Vichy, to look at Vichy, to look at its past, France's past, um, and, and to understand it. There are certainly public commemorations the, the government has uh, created some study groups over the years to, to look at the documents and to explore the records and, and help people kind of come to terms uh, with, with what has happened. It's certainly a complicated period with, with no easy answers, and it's something that people, um, I think, are still coming to terms with and still trying to, to understand. That was Shannon Fogg. She's the author of The Politics of Everyday Life in Vichy, France, Foreigners, Undesirables and Strangers, which was published in 2009 by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.